0: You're listening to audio provided by Valleydale Church. To find more resources or to donate to this ministry, please check out valleydale.org. Jesus Christ is risen. Amen. Amen. I have uh, been so excited about this morning since Friday night. If you were here Friday night, you remember this whole place was covered in tables and the stadium seats were out for just a bit. We had a Great supper, and we had a great time of fellowship and worship. And uh, then we took the Lord's table just as the early church did around the tables after they ate. Thank you, Kathy, for putting all of that together. What a wonderful evening of fellowship. And uh, Denise, uh, who has fixed breakfast this morning, we're going to give her a title. We're going to give her St. Denise of the Sausage Balls. And um, You know, it's funny, I think about people, I think about the food that they, her mother, Miss Mason, makes the best cheese straws you ever put in your mouth. And then uh, Denise Willie makes the best, you know, uh, carrot cake you ever put in your mouth. I can just start going through women in this church and say, this is what they're known for, what they're known for, what they're known for. There's a common theme to it. Um, Thank you for being here. I hope you've got your copy of God's Word. This is so meaningful today because just 10 days ago, I was standing literally at the Western Wall. Now, most of you know it as the Wailing Wall. The uniqueness of it this time was that I stood there with two groups of men, and uh, all of those men were men out of the five churches that I've pastored throughout my 42, 43 years of ministry, it meant so much to me to go there, to that place, especially so close to, Passover and so close to Easter. A, a number of years ago, there was um, there was a journalist from either the New York Times or The Wall Street Journal or, you know, The Washington Post. I can't remember which paper she represented, but one of the nation's largest papers, they had sent her to Jerusalem to write special interest stories on. Uh, the Jewish nation on Jerusalem, and, and uh, all that was going on there in politics. She literally rented an apartment. You can do that if you can afford it. Uh, she rented an apartment that overlooked the square where the Western Wall happens to be. And uh, she watched it every day. She would get up in the morning. She would stand there and eat her breakfast looking out at those uh Jewish men and Jewish women that would come there to the wall to pray. And as she stood there, one day she noticed one old Jewish man in particular. And she just watched him. And she kept her eye on him and he spent several hours there praying. And then he left and he came back in the afternoon. And in the afternoon when he came back, he was there for several hours I think I've got a shot of it somewhere. You can see them going down to the wall to pray. And there he stood for several hours to pray. And then he left. Well, the next morning she got up and she was going to look to see if that old man would come back again. And he did. And he was there for several hours praying, and he left. Now, she did this for weeks on end, and she saw that same old man come back time and time again. And she thought, this has got to be a story here. So she went down one morning about the time he was to arrive, and she caught him. Now, she'd have to catch him just before he would get to the wall because... Uh, only Jewish men can go in one section and Jewish women go into another. And you say, well, that is misogynistic. Well, let me tell you, those guys right there could care less. Uh, I'm telling you, uh, that's the way it's going to be. And so they are there praying at that wall, and the women have a place to pray at the wall a little further down. Well, she caught the man just before he got down uh, to the wall, and she said, this is who I am. I'm a reporter from one of these major newspapers, and I've noticed you for weeks now going down to the wall, and you will pray for the morning for several hours. You'll leave, and then you come back in the afternoon. And she said, can I ask you, could I be so bold as to ask you, what are you praying for when you go there? And the old Jewish man, like so many of those that you just saw right there, The old Jewish man looked at her and he says, well, I come in the mornings and I pray for mankind. I pray for unity. I pray for brotherhood. I pray for peace to be among all people. And he said, then I leave and I go home and I have a little cup of tea and some uh, bread and some honey and I come back in the afternoon. And in the afternoon, I pray for all of those that are suffering from disease and sickness and illness and pray and ask uh, the Lord if he would take away all of the things that cause mankind to suffer. Well, the journalist was so incredibly moved because she'd watched him. This man did this faithfully. She said, let me ask you, how long have you been doing that? He says, I've been doing this for 25 years. 25 years. I come to this wall every morning. 25 years I come to the wall every afternoon and I pray every day. And obviously, just without knowing what to say, she said, that must be so fulfilling. It must be so moving. Can you tell me, what do you feel like coming here and praying at the Western Wall and praying for these things? And the old man in sadness looked at her and said, it's like praying to a wall. For so many, that is their experience. That's what the world says to us anyway, that all of this means nothing. Your prayers are like talking to a wall, that there really is no God. There really is no resurrection. There really is, I heard from a a, a very famous person this week, Uh, not personally, but I, I saw a response that they made. Someone that I thought surely knew Jesus Christ, Candace Owens, who made the comment to somebody, you want me to believe that a man died and in three days rose from the dead? And she simply rejected that. And basically, at best, is agnostic and in the least an atheist. The world tells us that. There's no need for us to gather this morning. There's no need for us to be here. Our prayers won't make it any further than the roof of this building. It's like talking to a wall. And for many of us, that's our Christian experience. We've taken our deepest needs and and our strongest hurts and, and our most severe wounds and the things that concern us most and we pray and we pray and we hear nothing and we feel like that it is useless. You even watch news journalists today. They will comment on that in the midst of a tragedy, a national tragedy, people are shot or a hurricane has destroyed so much of a city or a tornado has obliterated a town and hundreds of people have been killed and some politician or some journalist will say, our thoughts and prayers are with you and now journalists are saying, "Uh, what's the use of your prayers? There's no need in praying. That all started with a governor. Of a state here in America who said that he left office in disgrace his brother who was a news journalist picked up on it said the same thing you can keep your prayers he left his uh, job in disgrace as well but that's another story for another day that's what the world tells us that's what we hear is any of this really real Did any of this ever happen? And if so, why do I not see it? Why do I not sense it? Why do I not experience it? It's because the world has been feeding us all of this that says you can't trust any of this. Now, I want you to listen to me on this Easter Sunday morning. Because I want you to never allow your preoccupation with what the world tells you can't be done with the simple truth of what Jesus Christ and the resurrection has already done. Now take your copy of God's Word. I hope you've got a Bible. Why in the world would you come to church on Easter without a Bible? Take it, look with me at Matthew chapter 28. And by the way, Matthew was written for the Jew. And you're gonna come to his account here of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And you're going to hear what the world has to say, but you need to hear this morning the resurrection's reply to the world. Now, what is the world going to tell us about all of this? What does the world tell us today? The world tells us that you will have a hopeless end, but the resurrection says you will have an endless hope if you trust in Jesus Christ. Now, look at the text with me, beginning in verse 1 of chapter 28. Now, after the Sabbath, as it began to dawn toward the first day of the week. Now, just stop. Something is about to happen. I I, I wish we had a little music here, because underneath this, what you're going to hear is this kind of music. Dun, 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 dun. You see this? As it began to dawn. Something is about to happen. Something is about to take place. Something is about to occur that is new, that has never happened before. Toward the first day of the week, that is Sunday morning, just before the sun begins to come up. Just in that moment, you know, as you look out at the darkest part of the night, there at the horizon, there is a razor thin string of light that appeared just before that moment when that light begins to appear. Just prior to that, something is coming. Something is going to happen. Just before that, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary, if you look over to Mark's gospel, Mark will tell you in chapter 16, I believe it is, that Salome is coming as well. Salome was the the mother of James the Less. We don't have time to get into all of that, but you've got two Marys and you've got uh, Salome that is there, and they are coming with all of these spices. They're coming with these spices to finish the burial of Jesus Christ. Uh, the day ended on Friday before they could finish embalming the body of Christ. Uh, Shabbat was going to come at uh, six o'clock at sundown. And so they had to just seal up the tomb, get out of there. And they would have to come back and finish the job on Monday, which is what they were doing. Now they come with the intention of getting into that tomb and finishing the embalming of the body of Jesus Christ, sticking the spices down into all of the wrappings that they had wrapped around Christ on that Friday afternoon that he passed away. And uh, as they get there, they're going to discover what they were not expecting and they will not find what they were expecting. What they find that they did not expect was an angel. And what they found that they did not expect were comatose Roman soldiers. Roman soldiers who had passed out, who were comatose, who were simply out of it the entire time they were there. And what they found that they did not expect was the stone rolled away and an empty tomb. What they had expected to find was a stone sealing the tomb and a body still inside. So they come that morning. And they come with heavy hearts and depressed spirits and just in great discouragement because on that Friday afternoon, they watched their hope ebb away. They watched all of their hope die that Friday afternoon at 3 o'clock. They watched their hope taken down from a cross. They watched their hope picked up by men and carried off. They walked their hope to a tomb. And they went into that tomb where their hope was lifeless. And they began the process of embalming their hope. Now, it wasn't just true of these women who did that. If you've got your Bibles and you look over to the last chapter of Luke's gospel, and uh, that is Luke chapter 24, you're going to see that there are men whose hope died as well. These men that are on their way to a place called Emmaus. And suddenly the resurrected Christ that they don't recognize appears to them. And they're talking one to the other. And he said to them, what things are you talking about? And they said the things about Jesus, the Nazarene, who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word in the sight of, uh, of God and all the people and how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to the sentence of death and crucified him. But we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. These men had lost their hope as well. These men thought their hope was gone. These men had determined that hope died and that hope had been buried and that hope had been embalmed. Now there's some of you here that that's where you are. You'd have to honestly stand up and say the reason I'm here this morning is not because it's Easter. The reason I'm here this morning is not because of my family. The reason that I'm here this morning is that I've got a dead hope and I'm just looking for something out there, anything out there that can tell me something about what do I do when a hope is dead, lifeless, I've embalmed my own hope. I've buried my own hope. I had a marriage, but that marriage is dead and there is no hope. I had a child that I loved and we reared in the things of God, but they've gone now out of the things of God and our hope for that child is now dead. It rests in a grave somewhere. I had a hope for this, I had a hope for that. I had a hope for a business, I had a hope for a job, I a hope for finances, but all these hopes are dead. I had a hope for my spiritual life at one time When I was young, Christ spoke to me and moved in me, but it has been years since that has happened, and my hope is now dead, gone, buried, lifeless. I have no hope. Some of y'all are old enough to remember Larry King. Um, I I don't know why my mom and dad watched Larry King every night at 9 o'clock, but... You know, there was just nothing to do but to leave the room. (laughs) But, uh, you know, Larry King was the great interviewer of all of these stars. And every once in a while, he'd have somebody on that I was interested in. And uh, Larry King, during his whole time, everybody knew that Larry, a Jew, uh, this great, popular, well-known, world-renowned interviewer, wealthy man, was terrified of death. I remember a conversation that he had with Billy Graham. I remember a conversation that he had with John MacArthur. And he talked about how he feared death, how he was terrified of death. Sean, his seventh wife, um, his seventh wife. Can you imagine being married seven times, dying and going to hell? Uh, Can you? Listen. His seventh wife had to tell him, knock it off, Larry. You're terrifying the teenage boys. They had teenage boys, and he talked so much about death and his fear of death that it was scaring his teenage sons. Larry said that they had called the insurance agents to the house Lawyers were there, his lawyers were there. They were meeting, Sean, his seventh wife, himself. They were meeting with these lawyers, these insurance trying to figure out a way to write a will so that they could avoid all of these death penalties and taxes and all of this kind of stuff. And he said, 20 minutes into the conversation with, these, with my wife, with these lawyers, with these insurance agents, he says, I realized I won't even be here. What difference does it make? Why do I even sit here and listen? to And with that, he got up and left. He says, I'll be dead. I'll be gone. It won't make any difference. And he says, I can't stand to listen to this anymore. And he left. Now, I want you to listen to what the article said. New York Times reporter writing about Larry King's fear of death. He says, King takes four human growth hormones every day. He did. He had this regimen. He says that he feels grace, great, but in case of death, Larry King has arranged to have his body frozen and then thawed out when researchers discover a cure for whatever killed him. I tell you what killed him old age. He's at least 150 the last time I saw him. King later told me, now listen, he later tells the reporter this, having told him that he is going to be chronogenically frozen, that he is going to be brought back, thawed out when they find a cure for whatever it is that was killing him. He says, he told me behind cryonics are all nuts. But at least if I know that I can be frozen Just before I die, and then I can be thawed out. I have a shred of hope. Other people, Larry King said, have no hope, but I will have at least a shred of hope. Do you know what happened? Just before he died, he decided not to do it. So that Larry King, according to himself, died with no hope. That is is what the world tells you, that you will have a hopeless end, but the resurrection this day tells us that you can have an endless hope in Jesus Christ. Now look, that's the first verse. Let's try to do a little more than that. Let's go now to verse two. Or pick it up in the middle of verse 1, if you would. And I want you to see this, that the world is going to tell you that you will have a lifeless end. That is, at the end, no life. You die. It is anathema. It is simply obliteration. You die, nothing else is there. The world tells us you will have a lifeless end. But the resurrection says you can have an endless life. Now, y'all don't get excited. I'm going to run around this stage up here in a minute. He comes and he says this, Mary Magdalene, the other Mary came and they looked at the grave. And behold, a severe earthquake had occurred. Now, let me tell you, everything in these next few verses would, would bring about tremendous fear if you took Jesus Christ out of the picture. Yeah, you know, I've never been really in an earthquake I was teaching in the jungle of, Philippi- uh, of the Philippines when I heard this tremendous boom, like an explosion, and I stopped and I looked at those Filipino pastors and I said, what, it, what in the world is that? And they looked at me just nonchalantly and said, oh, that's an earthquake. Uh, it is an earthquake that had happened somewhere over in another part of the jungle. I never knew earthquakes sounded like anything, but it sounds like a sonic boom going off. There had already been one earthquake in the previous chapter. In Matthew chapter 27, verse 51, when Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit, when he died, behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook and the rocks were split. Now what that literally means is this, is that the earth opened up. It was like the tectonic plates. It was like the rock of the earth itself simply opened up in these great chasms. The whole of Jerusalem and I suppose uh, everywhere else, the whole earth shook in that moment. All around the earth, the world shook and there were great chasms that opened up. But there's a second earthquake that I never noticed before until the last two weeks. And you find it right here in verse 2 of Matthew 28. And behold, a severe earthquake occurred. Why did it occur for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven? Now, I, I want to tell you something. If you take Matthew's gospel, Mark's Gospels, Luke's Gospel, and John's Gospel, and you merge these three together, and you come to a place where you read through these accounts, you've got angels you've got angels appearing and and going off and standing and sitting and rolling and moving. You've got speaking. You've got a flurry of angelic activity that is almost hard to keep up with. This angel comes. And when this angel comes and begins to roll away the stone and to sit on, as he begins to roll that away, evidently the entire earth began to shake again. There was yet another earthquake that occurred. He rolls the stone away, and he sat upon it. And his appearance was like lightning, and his clothing as white as snow. And the guards shook for fear of him. Now, when he shows up, these hardened Roman MPs, you can call them, these were, these were marine MPs that were standing there guarding this grave. These guards shook for fear of him, and they keeled over in a coma. They passed completely out. The women didn't. But the men did. I'm just reading the text. It is amazing what you can find in Scripture if you just read it once in a while. You know, so the angel spoke to the woman. Now watch this. This angel is extremely insightful. Uh, He's extremely intelligent. He speaks. He is articulate. They can understand everything that he says. He looks at them and he can tell that down in their hearts they are fearful. And so he says, don't be afraid. These guys have passed out. But look, don't be afraid, ladies. It's okay. For I know that you are looking for Jesus. He knew what they were there for. He understood why they had come to the grave. He says, I know that you are looking for Jesus. Now watch this. Crucified. He, he, he who has been crucified, he is not here for he is risen. Now you know some people, we've got a day that's gone absolutely nuts over UFO. Are there UFOs? Are there people out there? Are there other planets out there? Well, let me tell you something. You got an extraterrestrial right here talking. He is. He's supernatural. Uh, He chose at this time to appear to these people. He speaks to them. He understands their feelings. He understands their emotions. He understands why they're there, what their plan is. And you've got someone who is not of this world, of this dimension. You've got an extraterrestrial who shows up, and look at what he does. He proclaims the death of Jesus Christ and that Jesus Christ is not in that tomb, and the fact of the matter is he has risen from the dead. So if you got to have a word from beyond, bingo, there it is. He gives them a word about this. I know why you're here. I know what you're looking for. You are here because you're looking for Jesus, the one who was crucified. He is not here, and the reason he is not here is because he has gotten up out of this grave, and he left. He has risen from the dead, and behold, he's going ahead of you into Galilee, and there you will see him, and behold, I've told you all of this. He gives them all of this right here. He tells them, you need to understand this is what has happened Salvation has come. That whole thing is about salvation. That whole thing there is about Jesus Christ paying the penalty of sin and, um, and uh, redeeming mankind for himself. And, and the interesting thing is this. Watch it what he says here. He tells these ladies beyond he's not here, he is risen, just as he said, I know what he told you. I, I, I know what was said to you. So, He also knows that's not enough for a human. He knows that they're not going to believe even what an extraterrestrial superhuman being is going to say. So that's why he says, come on here and see the place where he was lying. Now, if you were with me just 10 days ago, we were in that garden tomb, that area where Jesus Christ, we believe, was buried. Whether this is the exact tomb or not, I don't know. But it is a great indication. It is carved out of limestone. It's carved out of this this sandstone that is there. There's a small entrance. You have to duck to go in. And there, if you can see this right there, you can see there was a place for a body here and a place for a body here and a place for a body here. It's where a family would be buried. And you see, it's all been broken out. There would have been a ledge on top of each one of these. And so on that ledge, most likely, this you have to walk in this way and turn and walk in like this, like it's in in, in a U right here. So there the body, either there or there, the body of Christ had been placed. And Mary looks in. Now let me show you, are you with me? Look over at John's gospel, and in John's gospel, you're going to see in John chapter 20 where Mary is standing outside of the tomb weeping. John chapter 20 and verse 11, but Mary was standing outside the tomb weeping, and so as she wept, she stooped and looked into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white, one at the head and one at the feet where the body of Jesus had been lying. So here, if Jesus had been lying on this, this uh, le- left side right here, if his body had been lying on a ledge right there, if his body was there, an angel was over at the top where his head would have been, and an angel was here at the foot, down here at the bottom, toward, toward us, at the foot. So an angel at the head, bottom. The, John tells us that when he got there, he looked in, went in and saw the wrappings that had been around Jesus. And as I read that and study that, from what I understand, all of those bodily fluids, all of those aloes and spices would have hardened those strips of linen that had been wrapped around Jesus so that at the resurrection, Jesus' body would have simply passed through the linen wrappings and out of the grave. Jiminy Cricket. Can you imagine such? Looking in there and seeing the shell of linen cloth that had been wrapped around him. And that's why it says in John's gospel that the facial napkin was rolled up, folded up, and set to the side. This maintained the shape of the body of Christ and the body of Christ, that resurrected body, simply floated up through that, permeated that, came out of that, And went out through that stone that was, I think, still there. That angel came and rolled it away. Not so Jesus could get out, but so Mary could get in. And she looks in and she sees that. An angel at the head of this and an angel at the foot. I'm going to show you something you have not seen since the days of Jeremiah any Jew that would stick their head in there and see this would understand immediately what this was. It was the Ark of the Covenant. In behind the veil, there was a piece of furniture, a box made of shittim wood and overlaid with gold with a top that was specially made out of gold on the top of it, and there were two angels that were there kneeling. One on this side, one on this side. And once a day, on Yom Kippur, on the Day of Atonement, that Priest, that high priest would slip in behind that veil, carrying a sense of full of live coals. It would become the only small illumination he would have, and he would make his way to that mercy seat. And in the other hand, he had a bowl of blood from the sacrifice and he would dip his fingers in that bowl of blood and sprinkle the blood on the mercy seat. And then he would back his way back out of that veil and out of the holy place. But let me tell you something. On this day that Christ was placed in that tomb, no high priest went in there Uh, to sprinkle blood it was the high priest who was also the sacrifice who went in and was placed on that mercy seat and his blood covered that mercy seat and when he had made purification for sins he got up and he walked out of there that was the mercy seat there it was where you and I would receive our salvation, our redemption. He wrought it on the cross and he brought it to life in the tomb. Let me tell you something. The world will tell us that you will have a lifeless end. If you die without Jesus Christ, it certainly will be that. But let me tell you, with Jesus Christ, you can have an endless life. Let me give you the last thing. Back to this passage, the last two verses, seven and eight. Listen to what is said right here. You see, the world comes and says that you're you're going to have just hollow happiness in life. And yet in the resurrection, we're told we can have the fullness of joy in life. Hollow happiness That's all this world has to offer. Just hollowness with its happiness. Oh, this will make you happy, but for a minute. Oh, this will bring you just a little excitement, but just for a minute. It's hollow, it ends quickly, it does not last but a few seconds. This angel comes and says to them, Go quickly. Tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead. And behold, he is going ahead of you into Galilee. And there you will see him. And behold, I've told you. And they left the tomb quickly with fear. Now that is not terror. That is an expression of worship. The word fear there means to have awe, to have reverence. It is what is described in the word of God Uh, that should happen to us when we come into worship, there should be such an awe and such a reverence that it would be said that we fear God. Do you see what happens here in this? What happens here is this. When they leave, Jesus met them. Verse 9, greeted them. They came up. They weren't afraid to come up to him. They came up to him and took hold of his feet. There's the worship, and they worshiped him. You know, I thought about that the other night. I just have to tell it. You know, the, the youngest grandchild we've got is Courtney's little, the, the last one, Dallas. And she's a little over a year old, right? She's a little over a year old. And uh, she's been scared of me ever since she could. She'll come into a room. She'll just she'll look at me. She won't take her eyes. You know, they'll say something over here. And she just, She stays locked on me because I think she's terrified that I was going to come get her or something. I don't know why. But I I want to tell you, we were down here watching uh, Audrey play volleyball the other night, and I was sitting on the stand, and, of course, she's down there. Dallas is down there running back and forth, running back and forth, and all of a sudden she runs over to me, and, you know, just little as she is, she grabs around my ankle and hugs me. That's as much hug as she could give me. She grabs me around. That's exactly what these women are doing here no longer terrified, but worshipful, reverent, awe. They come and they grab him there. And look, they leave quickly with that sense, that expression of worship, but also, look at what it says, great joy. And they ran to report it to the disciples. Here is this tremendous joy that only Jesus Christ brings. Let me tell you, joy is that inner settledness in life that no matter what happens, I am comfortable in Jesus. I can't be disturbed. You can't shake me off of anything. There is just such a settled joy in my... What does Nehemiah chapter 8 say? The joy of the Lord is my That's why I don't fall to pieces in life. That's why when something happens tragic in my life, listen, I don't go to pieces. Why? Because there is a settled joy in my life that gives me strength that God is always going. Why was that joy there? Three reasons and I'll close. Direction. Let me tell you what. Resurrection brings direction. Do you see what the angel says to them? You go tell them. Tell them what? Tell them that he is going ahead of you into Galilee. He is there. You go tell the disciples that Jesus Christ has given them direction and that he is going to already be there by the time they show up. Let me, let me, let me, let me tell you something. Wherever you are going, you're going to discover God is there. You remember remember the end of the, the great evangelistic movie, Chisholm? Where Pepper says to Sally, there is no law west of Dodge and no God west of the Pecos. Right, Mr. Chisholm? And the great theologian John Wayne says, no, Mr. Pepper. Because no matter where people are, the law will eventually get there. And no matter where people are, they will discover God is already there. Let me tell you something. (laughs) He is there. If you know him as Lord and Savior, he gives you the joy of direction in your life. I know where I am going. And when I get there, God is already there. He not only brings that direction, but listen, he comes and he brings a second thing as well, and that is he brings his person. The angel says to them, there you will see him. He says, tell them that. When they get there, they'll see him. Do you know that 11 out of the 12 disciples were all from around Galilee? There was one who was not. Who was that? Judas. Judas. Judas was the one who was not from Galilee. He was from the south. He was down uh, toward Jerusalem or or out of Jerusalem to the south. All of these disciples, these 11 disciples, they knew Galilee. Jesus was from Galilee. He was from Nazareth of the Galilee, you will read in the text, because Nazareth is in that region of the Galilee. Cana of the Galilee. Jesus leaves Nazareth, goes through Cana, goes down to Migdal. If you were on the trip with us, we went to Migdal. He gets to Migdal, and then he moves up around the northern end of the Sea of Galilee and gets to Capernaum. And in Mark's gospel, uh, we're told that when Jesus came to Capernaum, it says this, and he was at home. That was his home. For the three years of his ministry, that's where he did most of his teaching. That's where he called most of his disciples. That's where he did most of his miracles. He says, go back to that familiar place. Go back to the place where I first called you. Do you know that's part of what's happening this Resurrection Sunday? Is that Jesus Christ is calling some of you to come back to him? And uh, he is saying, you can meet me right there where I first met you. You remember the old song, I'll be seeing you in all the old familiar places? Well, let me tell you something. The Holy Spirit should be saying that to you right now. You've been off and away from Jesus Christ. You've been out of the Word. You've been out of church. You've been out of His fellowship. And you've been there too long. And the Holy Spirit is speaking and saying, listen, come back to where you first met Him. Get here to the altar. Get on your knees. Get on your face. And come back to the place. Where you first met Jesus Christ. But resurrection means also salvation. This whole thing that this angel talks about is salvation. Isn't that fascinating to you? That this angel is obsessed with salvation, he's obsessed with the one thing this angel will never experience. You can experience, the angel cannot. And that's redemption and the salvation that comes in Jesus Christ. You remember that old gospel hymn? For angels will have to fold their wings in glory because they never know the joy that my salvation brings. They watch you. To see how the salvation of Jesus Christ impacts you. Because they'll never experience it themselves. But you can. Several years before I left Florida to come here to Alabama. There was a real tragedy right around the week of of Easter. There was a 30-year-old deputy by the name of Robert uh, Cotfilla. Robert Cotfilla, 30 years of age, uh, a Florida state patrolman, uh, was at the hospital because there had been a wreck. They'd taken some of the people to the hospital. He was down there filling out reports, finishing the paperwork. About three o'clock in the morning, he got in his patrol car, headed out and got on what is the Brandon Expressway near Brandon, Florida. He got on the Brandon Expressway and he looked up down uh, that expressway and he saw headlights coming in the wrong direction. Somebody had gotten on the wrong side of the median and instead of being on the other side of the median where they should be, they had turned and gotten on this side and they were coming at cars uh, in the wrong direction. He didn't have but a few, really, literally just a few seconds to make a decision and he gunned his car because there was one car... Uh, That was in the way of that oncoming vehicle moving in the wrong direction. It was a lady, 42 year old um, Ruth Green, uh, Sarah Green. And Sarah said that all she did was look up and she saw these headlights coming at her. She had worked the night shift. She was going home at three o'clock in the morning. And she said, I saw these lights coming. She said, I started to flash my lights. And she said, As I flashed my lights, he sped up, he started going faster. And she said, just as I thought, I've got to pull off of the road. I've got to get off the road and and out of the way of this coming car. She said, all of a sudden, here came this state trooper that pulled up beside her. And she said, just as she was beginning to try to pull off, he wheeled in in front of her and took the impact head on and was killed. 30-year-old. I want you to listen to what Sarah had to say about that. Commenting on what happened. She said, he saved my life. If this deputy had not made a split decision to pull around me, that would have been me dying. I was a random person on a random road at a random time. I did not know him, and yet I love him for saving me. That's you and me. We were not on the Brandon Expressway. We were on the hell expressway. And hell and Satan and death in the grave were barreling down the road to headline us. And all of a sudden, out of nowhere, someone I had never seen and never met came and threw a cross down in front of my life and was on it and took the impact of Satan and death, and hell, and the grave for me. So that I could get up and walk away. But the good news of the gospel is this. He got up and walked away too. Let's stand. All of us standing, our heads bowed. I've just given you the gospel as best I can give it. I've just walked you through eight verses that talk about the resurrection of Jesus Christ and what it means for your life. And I'm going to invite you to come now. There are many of you in this place this morning who've never, ever put your faith and your trust in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. There's a vast amount of difference in that And just believing that there is a Jesus. You not only must believe, but you must come and put your life into his care. You must surrender to him. You must come and confess to him. You're a sinner. And tell him that you know, I'm aware, I cannot save myself. And so this morning, in absolute faith, I'm trusting you who died for me to forgive my sins and save my eternal life. Now I'm gonna be standing here. I can pray with you. I wish I could pray it for you, but I can't do that. You have to come to Jesus on your own. It's not enough that your dad did, or that your mama did, or that a brother or sister did. You have to make that decision yourself. I invite you to come to Jesus. Others of you here this morning, listen, let this be the first day of of a new relationship with Christ in his church and in the body of believers and in his word. You were saved years ago, but you've never grown. You've walked away. You've slipped away. You've fallen away. Let today be a new day for you. Let this be the first day of a new year of following Jesus Christ. Others of you just need to come and kneel. You just need to come to Jesus. There are burdens on your heart. There are concerns on your heart. And so I just open the altars of this church and say, come back where you first met him. Come back and talk to him. Come back to the Lord who loved you enough to pull in front of your life and to save you. Father, it's in these moments I pray for your spirit to move and I pray it in Jesus' name. You come right now as Kirkwood sings. Thank you for listening to this recording from Valleydale Church. To find more or to connect with us about what you just heard, check us out at Valleydale.org.